If you're looking to be fit in any way, whatever that means to you, the way you would do that when you're in your teens or your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or beyond is very different than when you are at a different age group than the one you're thinking of. And of course, one of the biggest problems I, I know for me as a guy who's now 60 is my brain does not know how the how old I am. And it likes to think that I'm way younger than I actually am. So we're going to talk about how to deal with that no matter what your age is uh, on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body. I like to say starting feet first because those things are your foundation, but there's other parts that are pretty important too, I'm told. And uh, here's where we break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the flat out lies you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or do yoga or CrossFit or whatever it is you like to do. Dance, dance, revolution. That's a fun one. Uh, E-sim racing, archery. I'm thinking of some of the sports we sponsor, MMA, whatever it is. To do those things enjoyably and effectively and efficiently and did I say enjoyably? Trick question. I know I did. Because look, if you're not having fun, you're not going to keep it up anyway. So find something that you like to do. I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the movement movement. And we call it this because we are having, there's a movement we're helping create. And that involves you. I'll tell you how in a sec about natural movement, letting your body do what it's designed to do. And the way you can be part of the movement part is uh, go over to our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. doesn't cost anything to join. There's no secret handshake. It's just, you know, that's where the website is. You'll find all the previous episodes of the podcast. Um, you'll find the different ways you can engage with us on social media, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what the drill like and give us a thumbs up and subscribe and uh, hit the bell icon on YouTube. And I mean, in short, if you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. So with that said, um, Tony, do me a favor. Tell people who you are and what you're doing here. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, I'm a founder of a company called Athletic After 40. And what oh, we do... You have to do the simple part. Tell them your name. Tony Bevilacqua. Which Tony by the Bevilacqua. way, Bevilacqua is one of my favorite last names. It just ha has a ring that makes my brain really happy. And I know one other person with your exact name from my past. Oh, really? I was going to say, do you know someone else? I know another Tony Bevilacqua. So, yeah, no kidding. Um, swear to God. It means drink water in Italian. So I come from a long line of, of water drinkers, apparently. <laughs> how, how does one how does one get identified as a water drinker i know right yeah somewhere in there so yeah. here you are and now you can say more about what you do yeah so I, i'm founder of a company called athletic after 40 and we help guys who are over 40 to build what i call the athletic body we want to help them to lose excess body fat we want to help them to get into better shape so that they can perform better and enjoy life much, much better. And then the other thing that we want to help them with is sleep, stress management, because those are big things that guys tend to deal with as they get a little bit older, you know, whether it's work, family, whatever. And okay. usually those are areas that, are, that, that people struggle with. So are you suggesting that all the women living to li listen to this right now tune out or is there a reason for them to stay? No, I think there's certainly some carryover here, but um, you know, for the for the last four, four or five years, I've really specialized in helping guys. Okay, so ladies, stick around anyway because you never know. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and, and there may be a man in your life. Maybe there is. Maybe there will be. Uh, doesn't matter either way. I don't care. And uh, let's take it from there. So. You know, I'm going to start by saying when I got back into sprinting when I was 45, it took me literally a couple of years to kind of get my brain in sync with the fact that I was no longer 20 and that I couldn't work out every day. And that when my brain said, I'm on the track and it says, let's just do one more. That was the time to stop. And I'm still learning. Like at 60, I discovered that when I'm doing strength training, for example, if I'm going to do, uh, you know, a five by five, five sets of five reps of something. I can only do that once a week. 
And because I need that much time to recover. And if I have less time to recover, I don't build strength. It doesn't, nothing changes, but I have a bunch of time to recover. And we'll talk more about sleep and stress as part of that. Then I actually can continue to get stronger. But it was the hardest thing was getting my brain in sync with how old I really am. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I think especially if you're someone who has, I call it the athlete mindset, right? If you're someone who's been in athletics, you're someone who's been very driven throughout your years, you know, maybe you hit a high level of sport back in the day. Like these are the folks that I generally am attracted to and they want to play just like they played when they were in their twenties or their thirties. Right. And then things do inevitably kind of slow down a little bit. So I'm always interested in like trying to figure out like, what is it that we can do to optimize you, even though you're 60 years old. And in some cases, when we do things the right way, in some cases, I've got guys who are in their sixties who perform better, believe it or not, than they did in their 20s and 30s. Interesting. Um, Say more. Give me an example of someone who's doing something better in their 60s compared to 40 years earlier. Yeah. So quite a few guys. And one of the things that I think a lot of guys are missing out on, especially guys who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, even older than that. One of the things we didn't have when we were younger, at least I didn't, and a lot of guys that I work with didn't have was a really good strength and conditioning program. So like if we want to play a sport, like I was a swimmer back in the day, I swam in college and swam in high school. Like we went and we did the thing, like we swam and that's pretty much all we did. We didn't do anything extra. You know, we'd spend three hours in the pool, sometimes longer. We'd get out of the pool, we'd eat, we'd go to sleep and we'd do it again. Right. Like that's all that we did. So there was really no strength conditioning program, but nowadays if you were to, let's say you got a scholarship and you went to a college, you almost have to go see and see a strength conditioning coach. Right. You have to build your strength. You have to build your conditioning. You have to build some of these general things to keep you, number one, injury-free, right? There's a huge correlation there with staying injury-free, but then also you can perform better, right? So we didn't really get a chance to do that stuff. And now these guys are getting older and we're implementing in some of these strength conditioning routines and their bodies are feeling better. They're stronger than they've ever been. You know, I got ex-football players who are stronger now than they were when they were playing football. And they're like, I wish I would have done this stuff, you know, back in the day because I would have played so much better. So that's fascinating. You know, when it comes to sprinting, um, what I can tell you, two things. One is, so to be a master's All-American, you just have to hit a certain time. And those times after like 35 get slower, slower, slower every five years. Um, Once you turn 60, the times start getting way slower every five years. And I was at the uh, senior games right after I turned 50. And a bunch of 60-year-old guys were saying, just wait, man, it gets bad. And a bunch of 80-year-old guys were standing behind them going, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so, you know, so my goal is not to think that I'm going to be able to you know, run the times that I was running in my 20s or 30s or even my 40s. But I, as long as I can keep hitting those All-American times, then that'll keep me really happy. And then I just need to outlast everybody else. If I'm the last one standing, then I win everything. A hundred percent. Yeah. There's always that longevity thing, right? We want to stay in the game because if you can stay in the game, that's of course going to be a huge thing. But even just thinking like some of this, I tell my guys is even mindset, right? Because sometimes we, we put ourselves in this box that because I'm older, I shouldn't be able to perform as I, as well as I did when I was 10 years younger. I don't even want you to go down that road. I want you to legitimately think that you can be better as you get older. Okay. So needless to say, I'm thinking about the speed thing. So that one's high. I mean, I don't know anyone who is, Mm -hmm. um, so there's that, but there are aspects of 
strength conditioning and health where I can totally see that without question. So where are the places where we can expect that we can stay better for longer? And is there a place where that drops off? And where are the ones where it's like, look, we're just trying to slow down how things slow down? Yeah. So again, kind of going back to the, you know, if we're talking about just performance as a sprinter, if you've never really been on a really good strength conditioning program, and maybe you have, so we'd, that, that'd be a different discussion. But if we can put you on a really good strength conditioning program, there's a chance. And some of this depends on like where you were back in your career. Like if you were an Olympian right. and you would hit your like true genetic potential for performance, right. it's a little different discussion, right? But if you've never really been to that level, if you've never really you know, been able to to push that that potential up to whatever your true genetic potential is, you've got a lot of room there, possibly to be faster in your 60s than you were in your 50s. Right. There's something there, you know, there's something that's, to the training. No, that's there's really, other things too. Yeah. No, sorry. no, you win, go. Yeah, there's something to the training, right? But obviously we have to look at nutrition. We have to look at sleep. Like we have to be a little bit more comprehensive. We could get away with a little bit more when we were younger. But if somebody truly wants to perform at their best as they get older, we got to kind of look at all of these things. Let's optimize all these things and let's get you to that genetic potential. Let's see what you're really made of. That's the interesting point. The genetic potential part, because most people have not come anywhere close to that. And so I'm curious, you know, you mentioned early on just that a lot of the people that you're working with are attracted to are like former athletic, whatever. But when you're dealing with people who are not athletic, so they're, you know, the athletic people are closer to their genetic potential. These other people don't have a clue. What's it like working with those different populations? And give me an example, and not just for me, for anyone listening, give me an example of what kind of, you know, general strength and conditioning program you'd be talking about, whether it's for someone who's, you know, uh, coming not, not at their peak, but they were doing well before, or people who've like just starting for the first time to try and do anything for their health or for their athleticism? Yeah. So great question. And I think what we sort of grew up on, if we look back at the history of like strength conditioning, what did that model kind of look for, look like for us when we were in our teens and in our twenties and in our thirties, it was kind of a bodybuilding model, right? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger was the guy, you know, he was all over the place. He was in the movies. You could see him in Conan the Barbarian and we all kind of want to look like that guy. So we're like, okay, well, what was he doing to build that body? And even if you're an athlete, you maybe knew that that body might not help you to run faster, right? It probably would slow you down if anything, but we all kind of got into this mentality of that's how we need to train is more of a bodybuilding style. And if you think of a bodybuilding style of of training, what do we do to the human body? We take the human body and we break it down into a bunch of individual muscle groups. And then we beat up each of those individual muscle groups, right? Like there's guys spending like two hours on chest and tries, right? Right. And if you want to be a bodybuilder, that's awesome. But when we're talking about human performance, I look at it completely different. So we look at the human body as one giant muscle toenails to the fingernails. When you see an athlete perform, whether they're a gymnast, a hockey player, a sprinter, it doesn't matter. When you see an athlete perform, it's this beautiful, this beautiful orchestration of all of the muscles and all of the joints working together to, to be able to create these beautiful patterns, right? These beautiful movements. And that's what's super fascinating. And if we can really enhance that ability we train the system as one giant muscle as opposed to a bunch of individual pieces. That's where we can really accelerate someone's performance, overall human performance. And it doesn't even matter what the sport is. Mm. Let's strengthen and condition that system. Let's build you know, strength, stabilization, coordination, agility, all those things. And it lends itself pretty well to just about any sport that you're in. 
Well, so let's dive a little deeper into that. So what does it look like? Mm-hmm. If you can give an example of training this entire single muscle thing, I mean, you kind of just hinted about it, but yeah. if we can get a little deeper into that, that'd be really great. Yes. The best tools for the job. So one of the things, cause I've had, I've got a history of working with a lot of athletes and when we do get them to go to the gym to spend a little bit of time in there, we've got to be very, very efficient, right? So they don't want to spend a bunch of time in the gym. Like we want right. to get them in. We want to do the, the things that are going to create the most bang for the buck for them and then get them back out so they can go play, right? They can go do their thing. And what I found to be the best tool for the job is a barbell. So if you can teach someone the ways of a barbell, there's multiple different things that you can do with it. And I don't mean bench press. In fact, I actually hate the bench press because who's lying down in their sport, right? So not a bench press, just for the record, right? But we can do all kinds of different things with a, with a barbell. So I want my clients, I want my athletes to master the barbell. And if we can master the barbell, we can significantly improve not just the strength of the system, but also the power of the system, the coordination of the system. There's so much benefit to that. It takes some time, but if you can learn that, that's the key. That's the magic, if you will. I'm going to keep inviting you to uh, go, you know, one step lower, lower, lower. Mm -hmm. So now we're into this idea of mastering the barbell. Please say more. (laughs) Yeah. So mastering the barbell, like there's generally what we want to do first is we want to build a foundation of strength, right? And the foundation of strength, there's some basic fundamental movements that I absolutely love to build the full body. And you've probably heard of these before, but the back squat right? Just being able to squat down and stand yourself back up, right? We want to first develop the the skill of being able to do that squat. And then we can start to build up your strength using that skill, right? So it's really important that we learn the skills first, because if you don't learn the skills and we put a bunch of weight on someone, that's where injuries can occur. And we've got to be really careful with that. So I always start my clients, we call it movement mastery. We want to get them to move very, very well first. Then we can start to build it up. So that's one of them. Another one would be like the deadlift. Have you heard of the deadlift before? Oh, let me just say, well, yes, is the easy answer. I'll say, um, I'm going to, how do I want to do this? All right. I'm going to dive into something a little deeper, a little later. I love squatting heavy. I love pulling heavy. Um, yeah. My back does not agree with me because I've got an actual problem, not just like, you know, blah, blah, blah. We'll talk about that. But um, the deadlift was one of the things that helped me tremendously when I got back into spring and I was getting injured a bunch. There was a sprinting coach who's a big, big deadlift fan. And even more, he's a big concentric deadlift fan. So basically lift the bar, drop the bar, like don't even lower it slowly. Just let go once it passes your knees. And I called him and said, you know, I'm getting all these injuries. He says, what do you deadlift? I said, I don't know. I've never done it. I don't know, like 250 or something. He's what do you weigh? I said about 150. He goes, call me when you're deadlifting over 300. Because once you get over twice your body weight, things start to change. And once I got over twice my body weight, things started to change. And then I kept going. And the first time I pulled 400 pounds, my it was psychologically terrifying. Um, no reason it should have been. I mean, it was only you know five pounds more than I had done the day before, but nonetheless scared the crap out of me. And, the, yeah. and I remember, I remember vividly. I pulled 400 pounds. I dropped the bar and I thought, ah, crap, now I got to go for 500. And probably <laughs> my next thought was, hey, moron. <laughs> I love that. That's that athlete mentality. That's yes, it. Exactly. Yes, that's yeah. it. I get so, that. So I love squatting. I love deadlifting. Um, I, I'm going to save this for a little later because I do have yeah. a literally compromised spine. So I do want to address, you know, for what it is for people who are in, in, in a situation like mine. But let's keep going. So we have squatting. We have deadlifting. Mm-hmm. Pressing. 
So just a a standing overhead press, right? Uh, And then a pull-up. And I like even getting into the weighted pull-ups, right? So those would be four fundamental movements that we want to develop over time to build just full body strength, right? And then the next step would be, go ahead. Did you have a question? No, no, keep going. I mean, I do have a question, but, but keep going. And then the next step is we want to start to develop some power. So whenever whenever I talk about power, I'm, I'm referencing adding some speed into this strength that we've developed, right? And we need to have a foundation, at least I believe we need to have a foundational level of strength before we get into some of these power movements. But anytime you see an athlete, right, the, the currency of an athlete a lot of times is, is their ability to create power, right? right? Like a sprinter, you want to be very, very fast. And to be strong and fast, that's the guys that are winning, right? So we want to develop this power. And there's a couple of, there's a few different exercises, but just uh, just to keep it very basic, like you probably heard of the Olympic lifts, the clean and the snatch. Both of those things with a barbell are ways that we can teach someone how to use that strength, but in a very fast way. Right? Have, you, have you ever played, especially with snatch, not so much with the clean, have you ever mm-hmm. played with the dumbbell versions? And I ask only because... I love that one. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's easier to master. And there's something that, I don't know what it is, but there's something that when you're snatching a 100-pound dumbbell, it feels way cooler than snatching a 200-pound barbell. Have you ever snatched a 200-pound barbell? No, <laughs> but I have done a 100-pound dumbbell and it's a blast. Yeah, yeah. It is really fun. And um, no question, the barbell is harder to learn. Yeah. But generally, we can use more weight with a barbell right. than we can with a dumbbell. So I can make someone more powerful if I can teach them the ways of the bar. Got it. We can push those weights a little bit higher than, than dumbbell. So, you know, the things you just described um, are clearly the kind of things that to master, you're going to need somebody taking a look at what you're doing. This is not the kind of thing where you want to look at a YouTube video and go hit the gym. So what do you recommend for people if they want to start diving into this to do it in a way that's appropriate and safe and correct? Yeah. If you have zero experience with these things, I I would certainly go and get a coach, find somebody to help you and teach you these things. And before even that, before you get into any of these more complicated or complex movements, always remember to build your strength first, Mm. right? You want to, you want to work on these more powerful movements from a position of strength and stability, right? So build your squat, build your deadlift, build your presses, work on your pull-ups, like do those things, get really good at those. And I've got some standards that I want all my guys to hit before we even move into the Olympic lifts. And then once we get into some of those things, we teach it just with a wooden stick. You know, let's learn it with a wooden stick. And then we'll, there's even like a 15 pound barbell you can get, and then you can learn it with a 15 pound bar, and then you can add a 45. And, you know, and we're kind of watching you step-by-step along this journey to make sure that as we move you up, as we progress you forward, the movements still look beautiful. How do you deal with the, for lack of a better term, the egos of former athletes when you hand them a 15 pound bar? That's one of the hardest parts. Yeah. Especially if they've been a, you know, a lifter in the past or whatever, (laughs) but um, it's amazing how you can, like, I've been, I've done enough of these seminars over the years and things where like, we'll go for two days and we'll just drill Olympic lifting with a wooden stick and I will be destroyed by the end of the day, like just wrecked with a wooden stick. Yeah. yeah. So you can usually get people to that point. If there's something that you really want to work on that you need to work on and we need to spend a lot of time on it, it's really challenging. Yeah. You know, try holding a low squat position for, for 30 seconds. If you've never done that before, just body weight. It's really challenging, right? So, so 
you know, as people, let's, how do I want to put this? How do you deal with, or how do you instruct people to progress in building strength? You know, there's the whole, just the whole idea of progressive overload. You just want to do a little more each time, for example, but it's not quite so simple because it involves figuring out what you're going to do for sets, for reps, for rest, for structure. And that again, like I mentioned early on, can change as one gets older. And so how do you address that? As far as just the the intensity and then how often we're doing these things? Yeah, just, you know, like what does the structure look like for people of either different skill sets or different um, or different ages? I mean, obviously, again, like it was shocking to me. There was, uh, I'll tell you, one of my all-time favorite exercises, the Nordic hamstring curl. For people who don't know it, um, you kneel, you're kneeling on the ground, let's say, and you have something uh, holding your heels down. And while keeping your body relatively straight, a little bit of a hip bend, you just kind of lean forward slowly um, until you can't, until you basically you know, stop yourself from landing on your face by putting your hands down. Um, and I was trying this by doing like three sets of, you know, as many as I could going as far as I could till I fell down, maybe three days in a, or three days a week. And I just wasn't making any progress. And when I went to training it once a week, then suddenly within a month, I'm able to go all the way down, all the way back. And that was shocking for me to realize that I needed, again, that much rest and recovery to actually get that super compensation to, you know, to, to, to damage those muscles enough that they could then come back stronger and then do the next workout when I was already stronger. And yeah. that, again, not the way I worked out in my 20s or 30s and I don't know about my 40s, um, but, you know, it's effective for me in my 60s. Yeah, it's a great question. And that's a, I think it's person dependent, obviously, to some degree, right? So there's a little bit of an art and a science to this whole thing. Obviously, when you get older, the recovery is going to take a little bit longer, inevitably, but I'm sometimes surprised at just how well some guys do, and where we can train just about every single day, and they feel they feel good. Well, you know, yeah, no, as you were saying that I was having that same thought, there's something like, there's sometimes where I like to do something every day um, because it's easier. And to your point about getting in, getting out, like doing a 10 minute workout or a 15 minute workout, way better for me psychologically than doing an hour long workout or a two hour workout. And it seems that there are certain things that I can do almost every day and that's helpful, but there's some certain, some things where I really do need the rest. And it reminds me when you mentioned, you know, bodybuilders, I I bumped into a couple of former professional bodybuilders um, in the last couple of years. And I've asked them about what it was like getting older. And they all said the same thing right off the bat. They go, the legs go. And you see that with older bodybuilders, like from the waist up, they still can look huge. And from the waist down, they look like they've never lifted. Um, so again, there's these, uh, it's an, I think to your point, it's an, an individual thing and maybe even more than just individuals, certain muscles uh, respond differently than others. Certain movements respond differently than others. This is my hunch. You have more experience. So I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's really hard to compare to bodybuilders. I I'm not a bodybuilder. I've never really been in that world, but I do sort of believe that that's probably one of the ways to blow yourself up more so than the way that I'm, I'm uh, presenting here. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the overuse in those, those movements where they're single joint and they're beating them up is just like, yeah, no, it, but yeah. it is an interesting thing that I noticed um, with guys who are serious lifters. Like once they get to a certain point, their legs start shrinking. They still have, you know, arms the size of Montana, but then their <laughs> legs are more Rhode Island, I guess. Um, and, uh, um, <laughs> and, uh, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> um, 
So uh, um, there were some of the thought. Oh, I, I vividly remember when Jack LaLanne was in his early 90s and they were doing a, a story about him on the news and they're showing him lifting on a universal gym doing a bench press. And most people don't know he helped invent the universal gym. And he's yeah. like, you know, pushing really hard. It's like, oh, I mean, like every ounce of effort. And no one seemed to notice uh, other than me, it seems that um, he had 20 pounds on the stack. And it's like, and that was, you know, I mean, look, if I was 90 and I was bench pressing 20, I'd be happy. But it was also sort of shocking. It's like, oh, yeah, we we do get old. So anyway, so anything that you want to extrapolate from just the sort of individual thing of where you're going to have to work with whomever you're working with to identify what's working for you that people could, you know, at least have in the back of their mind as they're exploring this. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it just has to do with kind of how you're, when you, when you get a chance to work with a coach and there's a a level of communication there, I think that's super, super important because you have to kind of figure out what your athlete is, is capable of, like what's going on in their life on that day, on that week, whatever. And you might be able to push them a little bit more in that week. And you sort of get to know your athlete and you can have these conversations and you can program appropriately, right? So there is a little bit of an art form to this whole thing. The worst thing that you want is like have an athlete wake up the next day and they can't get out of freaking bed, right? Because they're so <laughs> sore, right? Or they're just exhausted. Like that's not what you want, right? We train so that we can be better in our everyday lives. So you have to kind of find that balance. And I've been doing it for so long that I think I inevitably take it for granted right. a little bit, right? But there is... It's amazing just what you can do on a day-to-day basis. And then there's some other sort of factors that go into this. What does your nutrition look like? How are you sleeping at night? Like these are huge factors. Holy moly. The sleep, let's, let's talk about, wait, before we talk about sleep, let's put a bookmark on sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to back up to something I alluded to uh, a bit ago. So for people who do have some impairment of, of some sort, um, how do you make adjustments? So for me, I'll, I'll get technical for those of you who are into it, and then I'll do the non-technical version. So I have a grade two L5S1 spondylolisthesis with a pars defect. Basically, my two ver- lowest vertebrae, my sacrum and the one right above it, instead of being aligned one on top of the other, the top one is 50% forward and has crushed the disc below it, and there's nothing holding it in place. That's the pars defect part. So my doctors um, do not like it when I tell them I'm trying to squat heavier, deadlift heavy. Um, I took it upon myself when I was long jumping and pole vaulting and I realized, oh, that vibrating in my legs, um, that's because I just smashed the crap out of my sciatic nerve. So maybe I should stop doing those two activities. <laughs> but they're like, you know, still upset that I even sprint because that's pretty aggressive as well. And then similarly, as a former All-American gymnast, um, I don't know one gymnast who doesn't have messed up shoulders in some way. And swimmers, of course, very similar often. So uh, just doing a straight overhead press with your palms pace, facing forward, not necessarily the ideal position with some for someone with a compromised shoulder. So how do you address these kinds of things when you're working with somebody? Yeah, I think, and again, everybody's going to be a little bit different, right? So we have to, of course, take those things into consideration and then also have a conversation, like an honest conversation about, in your case, with the spondylolisthesis. Yeah, good Did I say it right? Spondylolisthesis. Took me a while. Spond- yeah, yeah. Uh, but in that in that it's case, fun. I mean, there's a mechanical issue there, right? Like right. we've got one, one vertebrae that's literally sliding off of the other one. Right. So you've got to be very, very careful with some of these things. But now you make a decision, right? You make this decision whether or not you want to continue to, to strength train. You want to continue to do functional movements, like pick things up from the floor. You want to continue to, to sprint, right? And you have to make that decision. I believe 
that it's still in your best interest to continue to do those things and to keep yourself strong. Is it an ideal situation? A hundred percent not. We have to be really, really careful with the mechanics, with the biomechanics, with maintaining a rigid spine and pelvis as you create a hip extension, right? Or as, as you create movement in the hips. So there's things that we have to look at. We just have to be way more diligent with you than we would with somebody who has a healthy spine. Right. In terms of picking things up, I'd rather just hire someone, but I'm not in that position. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, some people would. They'd, you know, my doctor told me I can't, I can't do anything anymore. So <laughs> they sit on the couch, you know. And <laughs> as soon as I hear that, I'm like, yeah, I'm probably not your guy, you know. Yeah. There's a, a, a late comic named Rich Jenny who 30 years ago had a bit that I loved. He says, uh, you know, I don't understand how a Rolex watch can be forty thousand dollars for forty thousand dollars. I could just hire a guy to follow me around. Like, Jim, what time is it? 1215. All right, I'll get back to you later. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, same thing. It's like, yeah. yeah, I could lift weights, or I could just hire someone to lift weights. I mean, what the hell? Yeah. There's always that option, right? Yeah. yeah the mechanical thing is very, is very interesting because it's, it's one of those things and I appreciate you, you talking about being careful about it, but I'm going to say to humans who are listening or slash watching, um, if you are in that kind of situation, you're going to want to grill who you're working with to make sure they really understand what you're talking about instead of just trying to make up a story to kind of get you into whatever the next workout is. And I say that because I'll never forget, I talked to a chiropractor. I was invited to a lecture, happened to be at a chiropractor's office. And he, uh, and I said, well, what would you do in my situation? He said, well, you know, we put you in some traction to put those vertebrae in the right place. I said, but with the quote pars defect, the muscles that hold that vertebrae in place are not attached to the vertebrae. So there's nothing that's going to hold it in place. So what's it going to do to temporarily realign things? And the guy was stumped. And so it's like, oh, well, I definitely can't do anything with you because you don't understand the situation. So, yeah. um, so, you know, you're going to want to talk to someone who gets it. And conversely, like this, uh, another one, um, I've talked to doctors and sprinters, there's a you know, non-zero chance that at some point I'll have to get those two vertebrae fused. And so when I talk to doctors, I go, how many times have you worked with a sprinter or someone doing high intensity power moves where you've done the surgery and what's been the outcome? And similarly, I talk to people who've, who are sprinters and powerlifters who've had the surgery and said, you know, what worked, what didn't work, et cetera, et cetera. So you're going to want to really grill people and don't just take a simple answer um, of someone saying, oh, yeah, not a problem. Eh, it's probably a problem. Yeah, hundred percent. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer too, in, in a team approach. Right? So if you're going to find someone like for me and my guys, we have a physical therapist that we have on our team. You know, we have a, even a, an orthopedic surgeon that will come in and have conversations if needed. So we've got other people on the team too, because it's not just one person. It's you want, you want more than one mind on this whole thing. Yeah. And if you're an athlete, I believe you also have to have someone who, like you mentioned, have you ever worked with a, with a sprinter before? You know, there's different providers out there. If you just walk into any physical therapy clinic, there's a good chance you might be working with the wrong person because they've never really worked with an athletic population. So you have to be really careful with that. And I would argue this is this is also true, even if you didn't start out as an athlete, because um, if we're thinking that all humans are fundamentally athletes or athletic, then you're going to still want someone who understands where you think you may be going or what it is you enjoy or whatever. Because, yeah, it's I mean, I've had this argument uh, um, just about sprinting. It's very hard to find people to work with because there aren't a whole lot of us and we're notoriously hard to study as a result. But blah, blah, blah. Let's move on to sleep. So um, not because you're putting me to, but because it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, I called my sister last week and said, do you remember how mom used to sleep? 
And my sister said, oh, yeah, she didn't. It's like, yeah, I've realized that I'm like living her life. I go to bed around 11 or 12. I wake up around 530, which is not what I used to do. Uh, oh, and, you know, getting up once or twice to pee and uh, preferably in the bathroom so far every time. Um, but <laughs> watching my sleep patterns change has another been thing that's been shocking. And I'm still trying to figure out how to play with that. So jump on in. Not about me, just about sleep in general and wherever it goes. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think I find that's a huge problem for so many guys over 40. And, you know, the, the most common thing that I hear for guys over 40, probably unsurprisingly is, is the pee thing. I gotta oh, yeah. get up to pee. Like that's the number one thing, like 75% of the folks, that's what it is. <laughs> and honest to God, like we fix that one thing and they're good. It's crazy just fixing the pee thing. Yeah. And then, of course, the other one is like, I don't know why I wake up. My mind is just going, you know, and then I can't fall back asleep or whatever. But I'll tell you what, man, like the pee thing is like, and it's a fairly simple fix, right? It's like, well, what time are you, are you, are you drinking water at the end of the night? One would think. One would think I literally had this thought last night when I was sitting on the toilet because I like to pee sitting down in the middle of the night because uh, just in case because <laughs> um, <laughs> you never know. And I was thinking, when's the last time I had something to drink? And it was at six in the evening. So it had been a good nine hours since I had anything to drink. And in fact, last night, I don't remember if I got up twice or three times, but when I finally got up, which is at, at 530 in the morning, then I was peeing even more like I, as if I had gone, gotten up in the middle of the night and had a gallon of water drink. So in my situation, I'm going to, not that I'm trying to play stump the band, but um, I have like done that experiment about when's the last time I had something to drink. And that was not the delimiting factor. Yeah. Interesting. Usually that, that works. And I would even play with that a little bit more. I would go to five. Okay. Honest to God, like I would go to five and I would test that and see if that helps. All right. I'll give that a whirl. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah I can imagine that would make it well, you know, the other thing, um, and I'm going to get into this in a slightly different direction. I'm curious about anything supplemental for any of the things we're talking about, but let's talk about the sleep one first. When I had shoulder surgery, let's call it four years ago, because I don't remember. Um, and so I had to sleep in a chair for like eight weeks and um, I didn't want to take opioids mostly because they last so long in my system that I'm non-functional. Um, they're enjoyable, but then I can't do anything for a day. So, yeah. and that was right after pot had gotten legalized in Colorado. So I walked into a pot shop and said, you know, what do I do? And they said, oh, take these little indica gummies. And they just knock me out. And so when I do get up at three in the morning, uh, it's all I can do not to walk into the walls. So cause yeah. that's when they really kick in. But um, so I'm curious, not only just about anything you're thinking about supplemental to help with some of the stuff we're talking about, but not surprisingly, the number one conversation that comes up for older men and women is the question about hormone replacement. Well, let's not use the term hormone replacement therapy because that's often not what it is, but supplemental hormonal therapy, let's call it that. Yeah. A huge conversation nowadays, right? I mean, my goodness, it's, it's just, it's expanded so much over the last few years. I'm of the belief, like, let's start with the fundamentals first. Because a lot of guys are trying to like put a Band-Aid on something that we could potentially fix right. by just sleeping better at night, doing some exercise. A lot of guys over 40, even athletic guys, aren't doing any resistance training. They might be out running. They might be out biking. They might be out doing some of these things. They're not doing any resistance training. Their nutrition is probably not very good. Let's fix those things first. Let's fix, let's build a foundation. And if that's still not getting better, 
then maybe have that conversation with your doctor. I, but find- I feel like there's so much room to fix the foundation for so many people. Let's oh, start there. Well, there's, you know, look, I'm going to throw in the other part. I don't know one. How old are you? 47. Okay. I don't know one guy who's older than you, who is a fitness professional, who isn't taking testosterone or various other compounds similar to it, and who admits it. Uh, actually, I take it back. There's one guy who admitted it, but he tried to f- frame it like it was, you know, totally normal. It was paleo friendly and was, you know, like spinning it like there's no tomorrow. But I know yeah. a bunch of these fitness guys who are, you know, they're showing pictures of how they look and are not admitting that they are jacked on testosterone. It's like, well, I'm just on the high end of normal. Yeah, for a 20-year-old dude. But, you know, so that's all fascinating to me. And some of these bodybuilders that I mentioned earlier, a couple of these guys are former big deal pro bodybuilders. To this day, they won't tell me what they take. And they are undeniably doing it now because they were doing it then. So that's all very interesting. And the whole, uh, God, it's, that's that's something. Wait, but I got to back up. But I do love the idea of like, see what you can do first and foremost, because it's probably more than what you imagine without inject something. You might like the story. So this might help some of the, the listeners who might be thinking about this testosterone replacement therapy. So it's my mission, myself personally, to not have to take any medications, any of those kinds of things, any of those replacement therapies. I am very interested and very committed in keeping myself as healthy as possible. Right. And that means also maintaining a a healthy level of testosterone. Right. I want all of those things to be good as I go through my life here. And I'm a a testicular cancer survivor. So back in when I was 29, I got diagnosed with testicular cancer, had a testicle removed, you know, did chemo, did all the stuff. And that's when that's kind of my trans transformation point, if you will, where I'm like, look, I'm going to eat good every day. I'm going to sleep good every night. Like I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to live this healthy life. And it's like 17 years later, and I'm still kind of following this, this path. And my testosterone levels are completely normal. Like yeah. they're not on the high side. They're not, they're completely normal. Every time I get them tested, I get them tested every year. So even though I've got one nut, <laughs> I'm 47 years old, not taking anything. I'm just here to tell you it's possible. It's that's, possible. That's, yeah, that's great. So is there anything else we want to talk about in terms of sleep and getting good sleep other than don't drink? So maybe you don't pee in the middle of the night. Well, I was going to, I was going to kind of just go on that just a little bit more because again, that's like the number one thing, at least that I see, but even looking at the amount of water that you're drinking in a day, because I think again, we've been taught Mm. that we have to drink so much water, right? There's guys walking around with these, these massive things of water in there where we're like these big sponges that are, we're almost too watered. Now, this is coming right. from a man whose name is Water Drinker. Yes, right. You know, he is bucking his genetic and cultural heritage by telling you, you may not need to drink so much. That's a bold... Let me drink beer. Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Fermented water. But otherwise, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm going to, yeah. you know, there's this whole thing about like, you know, hard lemonade and hard whatever. Um, it's my new business. It's going to be hard water. People are going to go, isn't that just vodka? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So um, that's very interesting. So anything else other than paying attention to water consumption, not just when you had it in relation to when you're going to bed, but just in general? That's yeah. Really- and then I'm like a foundations guy. Like, let's let's pick on the easy stuff first before we get into like medications and supplements and all those kinds of things. Right. But like light in the room, you know, I mean, I want to talk is there about something the going on there? I want to talk about that. Sure. Uh, 
So there's this whole thing about uh, in, in the world that I live in, in particular, where it's like, you know, what did we used to do? What's the ancestral version of this? What's the paleo version? What's the fill in the blank? And everyone always says, you know, you need a totally dark room, except that we never lived anywhere where it was totally dark. You know, you get a full moon every month and you can read by that thing. So I'm not saying don't, you know, get in a dark room. It definitely makes a difference when I do it. But it always cracks me up. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you, you have this mythologized version of what history was like. And you're now trying to say that we need this thing, that life was never like that thing. I mean, I've literally given it no more thought than just that, but I had yeah. to toss that in there. I'm just wondering, like, did we always just sleep under the stars or were we in a, even know, if we're even some if we're, sort of a whatever? You know, it depends on where you are. If you look True. at, um, if you go to like Papua New Guinea, uh, while they did have a thatched roof over their head, it's, you know, readable light as soon as you get outside the thatched roof, I mean, you, it's, I have a vivid memory when I was a kid and I went to camp where there's a couple of full moons where it was as if it was noon. I mean, for all practical purposes. And so wow. it didn't matter if you had yeah. something over your head, it was ambient light everywhere else. Now, different yeah. flavor, different color, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, you know, there's some, I think there's some naturalistic fallacy going on when people talk about light. Again, if it works, if it's helpful, regardless of what the story is. Yeah. At the end of the day, like, what do we got to do? We got to test it, right? We have to be scientists and we have to kind of like test some of these things, but it's a really simple thing. And I think, like you said, there is certain lights that could potentially be more egregious to our sleep cycle than other lights. If it's a moonlight, we could argue that's very different than the light coming from your phone. Yes. Or the, the nasty street light that's right outside your window, depending on where you live, right? Like there are certain things that could potentially have that effect. And if you could try it, I, I know for me, like if you've ever gone to a hotel and you, you've got those, those dark curtains mm. and you pull the dark curtains and you go to sleep and like you wake up and it's morning, but you can't see any light. And you're like, oh my God, like, <laughs> like it's so hard to get up because it's so dark, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, so I think, I've done the worst, the worst one where I, I do that same thing. And we have those curtains in our, in our house. Cause my wife likes it totally dark. Um, it's so dark. That she'll do those with the curtains and wear a mask. Um, but, um, but um, there've been times where I went to sleep, woke up feeling refreshed after a full night's sleep, got up, started to move around and realized it was two in the morning. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like, Oops. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. But I mean, just, you know, playing with some of these things, but I would always start with some of these simpler things, even like noise, you know, if you're living by a road, a busy road, that could be something. And they've even done, have you read the book, uh, Mark Walker, Why We Sleep? No. Yeah. Amazing book. And he's one of the the top research guys on sleep right now. Um, It's called Why We Sleep. And it's either Mike or Mark. I always get mixed up. Mike or Mark Walker. I think it's Mark Walker, but um, fascinating guy. And he talks about all these things. And, um, you know, but these are kind of the foundational fundamental things that I think we need to start working on first before a lot of people just go to the store, they start taking melatonin or they'll go to their doctor and they'll get a script for, you know, whatever the medication is. And those medications, like they'll put you, they'll sedate you, but you won't hit your phases of sleep. Right. So there's, there's quite a bit of, of interesting research too, even on the different phases. Like if you play a certain sound, during the night in a sleep study, it will keep you out of a certain phase of sleep. Yeah. 
and this is all from Mark Walker. So go check that out. But it's it's super interesting. And uh, so even though you sleep continuously through the night, if you didn't get enough quote unquote REM sleep, that's going to affect your your health, right, right? In the long run. And there's this these cool technologies. I'm sure you've seen these before, but like the Aura Ring and yeah. Whoop is you know another one. And the, I think even the the watches and stuff all do this stuff. But it's interesting to kind of see some of that stuff. My, my joke over the aura ring, uh, my wife wears one and she said, do you want to get one? I said, what's it going to tell me other than what I know? I don't sleep well. So yeah, yeah. it was it's like a talisman. Yes. It reminds me to go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for letting me know something I already knew. Um, so, you know, and we've mentioned nutrition a couple of times and boy, if you want to get people fighting mad uh, other than talking about politics, nutrition is like I think nutrition actually might trump pun intended politics when it comes to getting people ready to, you know, put up their dukes and scream and yell and bitch and moan and et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing more entertaining than watching vegans argue with diehard meat eaters uh, only because, and I say entertaining only because they're each doing the same thing, which is assuming that what works for them can't work for someone else or vice versa. So when you talk about, I mean, what, first of all, what I love in this conversation is that you keep coming back to, let's just get the fundamentals down. So, and then work from there. So from your perspective and get ready for people to freak out, what do you think the fundamentals are when it comes to nutrition? The quality of your food, hundred percent. Interesting. Quality so, is everything. So the organic uh, cheese puffs instead of the non-organic cheese puffs. Yeah. If you can get the uh, organic Cheetos, just, just eat those. This is the whole good. thing. I, look, I don't know if you've noticed this, but my wife and I don't have kids. So we're very aware of our friends who go to Whole Foods to buy, you know, snacks for their kids. They're just buying the quote unquote, you know, righteous versions of the same crap we ate as kids. It is. Yeah. It's, you know, it's all natural cheese puffs. It's all natural Fruit Loops. It's all, I mean, it's hysterical to me. So, it is. So when you think think of quality of your food, please, again, I'm going to have you dive underneath that. Say more, please. Yeah. So we've got an, an actual prescription that we give people and it's, it's a, it's a framework and here it is. It's so simple. Meat, veggies, nuts, seeds, and fruit. Ooh, you're a no grain guy. Meat, veggies, nuts, seeds, and fruit. Let me elaborate on this a little bit more. So to your, to your grain comment. So I've come up with a way to measure this. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm a little bit of a nerd. I like numbers. I'm kind of objective and I want to see data if we're working with someone and we want to help them with their nutrition. So I call the RFP, the real food percentage. And I'll just give you an example. If I had a 100% day today, it would just mean that everything that I consumed came from those categories. Does that make sense? Yes. And where I find, and I've been collecting data on this for many years, where I find the magic happens. And when I say magic, I mean, we can get body fat to start to disappear. We can get people in a better place health-wise. We can see energy levels improve. We can see performance improve. Like all these things get better somewhere around 80%. Okay. So that means you don't have to be perfect to the prescription, but of course you have to make more good decisions than bad decisions. And I'm always interested in trying to figure out like, well, how bad can you be? (laughs) Yeah. And that's what a lot of people want to know is like, how bad can I be? Because if if I've told if I told you like the only thing you can eat from here on out is meat, veggie, nuts, seeds, and fruit, you're gonna be like, Yeah, it's probably not gonna work, right? So we want to try to make this sustainable. So at what point, you know, can this be sustainable? And I find that it's somewhere around that 80%. So we'll actually measure that and we'll track that over time and we'll correlate that to different things that we want as far as results go for our clients. 
So when someone does say, but, you know, look, for whatever reason, I prefer being vegetarian, how do you respond to them? Yeah, and it certainly can be done in that it still fits in the prescription, right? We're just omitting the meat, but then it narrows things down a little bit more, but we can still fall in that prescription. And really what, what is this prescription, right? It's, it's basically like, let's eat some real food. Yeah. Right. Like at the end of the day, I believe that mother nature has our back. And if we eat the foods that have been provided by mother nature, if we lean on those things as the majority of the sustenance that we get, we cannot just survive because it's amazing what we can survive on. Right. But we can survive and thrive. And that's what we want to do is we want to survive and thrive, right? Especially as athletes, like we want to perform well, we want to feel good. We want to, you know, we want to dominate this one life that we have. Well, that's interesting. What, so when you were a swimmer, what event? Uh, I did IMs. I did, uh, I was kind of the all around guy. I did some freestyle stuff and then some, some butterfly, but mostly I am. That was my thing. Got it. So, um, so more of the, it sounds like more of the middle distance rather than the sprints. Yeah. Like 200, 400 kind of in that yeah, range. Yeah, yeah. So I like what you're saying, and it's very interesting. And of course, I'm going to throw out my you know little personal something to throw a wrench in this conversation. Um, so I have a genetic disorder where I don't taste savory flavors very well. So meat to me just tastes a little metallic and chewy and very unpleasant. So I haven't eaten it since I was almost ever. And from the time I was a kid, like I have a vivid memory. My mom made pork chops and I like had some pork chop, you know, I was chewing it up and just didn't want to swallow it. My dad made me sit under the kitchen table. He said, you're going to sit under the table until you finish this pork chop. At the four hour mark, he finally relented because like I would put it in my mouth, I'd chew it up and then I'd have to um, coincidentally go to the bathroom and then I'd spit it out. I mean, it's never liked wow. it. So yeah. that's, um, and it wasn't until, ironically, I went to a paleo event and I'm saying, you guys all think that everyone should be eating a shit ton of meat. And I just don't like it at all. And one doctor said, oh, what do you think about the following like 10 foods? And they were either things that I don't like or would never miss if I never ate them again. He goes, yeah, you've got a genetic disorder. Um, and here's what it is. And you probably don't like fatty foods either. And I went, right. I don't, uh, oil does not, uh, and fatty foods go right through me. He goes, yeah, that's a whole different thing. So, um, and so, and the second part is I, I worked with a nutritionist once. It's actually a short, funny story. He I was on his email list and he sent an email saying, first person to answer these five questions gets a month of free uh, coaching. And so a couple of days later, he calls me and he says, you weren't uh, anywhere close to the first, but you were the only one who answered in complete English sentences. So uh, let's have some fun. And, uh, and I said, just, I'm going to warn you, I tend not to be hyper-responsive to dietary interventions. And he says, well, I think the first thing then, just for the fun of it, I think you're eating way too many carbs. And I said, just so you know, I don't know any power athletes, sprinters, powerlifters who don't eat a lot of carbs, but I'm willing to do whatever you say. And two weeks into this, I called him. I said, I just did something I've never done in a workout before. He got really excited. He said, what? I said, I bailed out. I couldn't get off the ground. I was just so depleted. He went, huh. So the 80-20 thing for, and grains, of course, are natural. Humans ate them for hundreds of thousands of years. So it's an interesting thing. I love playing with this, uh, with what you're saying and finding, again, finding the individual component that still works. But to your point, having things that are less processed in those categories and dealing with what you want to deal with is a very interesting thing that most people think they're doing better than they are. Yeah. And it's very simple. You can yeah. look at your plate and you can make a very quick assessment. You can even come up with a percentage, right? Like it's very simple to follow. And that's what we need. We need more simplicity and we need to get out of the weeds of carbohydrates and proteins and fats. Those are important to some degree, but 
it'll get taken. If you're eating, rest. yeah, if you're eating from those categories, uh, there's, you know, if you're a vegetarian, of course, there's, there's a little bit more to this, but for the most part, for most people, you pull from those categories and you're going to be pretty good. And if you're not, then we can have that conversation, but that's the foundation, right? I could, I could live on an all pistachio diet. There you go. <laughs> my, my wife literally hides them from me. So, yeah, yeah. Because otherwise I would just eat, eat them by the handful all day long. Um, yeah, that's funny. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, this has been a blast. And I do want to just emphasize this whole thing of, you know, kind of going back to the basics. And what's so funny for me as I think about it is people want something more special. They want something, first of all, that they can follow paint by numbers, you know, just do this, 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 rather than finding the thing that may be different for you. And um, everybody wants something that is, is, is seemingly sexier than just getting the basics down and doing those first and foremost. And I imagine um, you run into that with people. It's like, but aren't we going to, you know, do, do that single toe pull up thing where I'm dragging a sled while carrying a dog on my back and, <laughs> having a hamster run around my underwear. I mean, whatever the hell it would be. Yeah. So you've done that before. That's, well, that's only great. with a hamster. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. No people, people seek out sexy. Right. And I think the marketing, all that stuff that's out there is kind of sexy, but yeah. look, if we bring it back to the foundations and the fundamentals and sometimes, although I think, you know, I think squatting and deadlifting and cleaning and snatching and pressing and doing pull-ups. I actually think those are sexy. So, but some people might, might not find those sexy. I, I got to tell you the um, happiest I ever was in the gym was when I was doing a lot of heavy deadlifting and I'd go into the university gym and there'd be some big guy on the Olympic lifting platform, deadlifting, you know, let's call it 350. And he yeah. finishes and he starts to try to unrack the weights. So I went, no, no, no. Just leave that there. <laughs> and this guy, that. you know, twice my size. Yeah. <laughs> I love, it's, it's amazing how strong you can get, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like most people have no idea. Like they, they yeah. don't even know. It's, it's incredible. There's so much potential there. Untapped potential with these guys and well, girls. It's and, incredible. And there, I mean, there is one other thing that is tricky um, that I'll throw out and we can kind of, you know, close on this one is that the things we're talking about, mastering the basics and seeing the implications of them takes time and we all want it to happen yesterday and what do you see, what do you say to people when you see that there's progress being made but they're not seeing the kind of progress that they want necessarily i mean generally speaking we're before we would even work together we're very clear on what it is we're looking for mm -hmm. like what are the outcomes that we want what are the things that we're chasing here and we'll chase those things and then if we do hit whatever the things we're chasing we'll come up with some new things so we'll kind of it's a conversation right so i think it's important just to be really clear and on the same page you know if you're going to work with any coach or anybody make sure that you guys are are on the same team and you're moving in the right direction right you got to be working together on this whole thing yeah. I mean, um, I saw, I read something from on a, an email uh, that I get from somebody who was showing some guy who, you know, put on 20 pounds of muscle in two seconds or whatever it was. And this guy confessed, yes, that's true. Except that the before picture is not the real before picture. The before picture when he was skinny is the after picture from the real before when he was huge. Then he stopped working out and got really skinny. And then he just started working out again and got back to the way he was. It's like, oh, uh, so, you yeah. know, we're always getting bombarded with, let's say, often incomplete information that is, 100%. that is usually completely irrelevant for you. 
Yeah. It's kind of a mess out there. So you do have to be a little bit careful, you know, yeah. obviously you have to be very careful, but I work with it. You know, I call it the athlete mindset. You have it, Yeah. you know, other ex-athletes have it because we're willing to do the work. We just want to, we want to see some progress. We want to keep improving. We want to get 1% better. We're, we're in it for the long haul. So usually the folks that I'm working with are not folks who are like, look, I need to lose 20 pounds in 60 days or, or 20 days or whatever. Cause then I'm not your guy. Like right. this is, this is the long game, right? We're playing the long game. Well, Tony, thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been a blast. And if people want to find out more about you and what you're doing, they want to either just watch or get involved, how would they do that? You can find me on Facebook, Athletic After 40. I'm on LinkedIn, Athletic After 40. You can also find me on on the web. 40 spelled out or numeric? Uh, Just numeric, yeah, 40. So Athletic After 40. And then athleticafter40.com is the website. So you can go there and check it out as well. So. Awesome. Uh, well, I hope people do. And more importantly, I hope that you do and then report back with what you discover and experience, because that's where things get really entertaining. Uh, and for everybody else, um, thanks for being part of the conversation. And as I like to remind you, find out more at www.jointhemovementmovement.com. That's where you'll find uh, the links to all of our social media stuff where you can engage with us and where you can subscribe and get um, alerts about upcoming podcasts. And of course, just you know, rate and review, thumbs up, like, comment, all those things you know how to do. Like I say, be part of the tribe. Just subscribe. And if you have any requests or suggestions, um, whether it's someone you think I should chat with, including people who think who might think I have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, um, I am open to the conversation. Uh, just drop me an email, move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. And until then, most importantly, just go out and have fun and live life feet first. <laughs>